You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Please turn with me to Micah 3. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people, and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against them, who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice, and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. So, Father, you've given us hard words this morning. And I pray, Lord, in the light of these hard words, we would have soft hearts, hearts that love you, that trust you, that cling to you, and are learning by your spirit uh, to hate what is evil and to love what is good. God, in this season of longing and anticipation, I pray that you would make us a people who see rightly, who are not without vision, who see the evil in the world, the darkness, hate it, and cry out for the light. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, I would remind you that Advent um, originally, historically, uh, was not um, marked by the four candles of love, joy, peace, and I forget the other one. It's not patience, hope, hope. Patience and hope go together. Um, uh, but originally the first four, the four weeks of, of Advent were meant to orient the Christian church um, towards eschatology, towards its end, its goal. Um, the, the idea was here beginning the church calendar with the season of Advent um, was an orientation to recognize the, the reality of God's coming judgment, um, the death uh, that comes for all of us, and then on the other side of that death, heaven or hell. And uh, this was the mark of Advent, it was the season of Advent, it, it, it prepared us to celebrate the coming of Jesus, which would mark that judgment with hope. And we have uh, 
sentimentalized what Advent was all about. And now we just have happy, happy, joy, joy um, for the season of Advent. Um, But to remedy that, we are in the book of Micah. And uh, Micah um, has condensed his message to Israel um, and to Judah, the northern tribes and the southern tribes, into seven chapters for us. Um, And in these seven chapters, what you're going to find is, particularly in the first three chapters, um, a, a deep intensity of proclaiming the judgment of God and warning of the nature of their own sin. Um, and so in chapters one through three, um, I think climactically today in chapter three, uh, we see the results of their sin, we see the effects of their sin, we see the judgment of God coming against their sin. Um, but as I told you the first week, uh, throughout those three chapters, God has sprinkled um, hints, foreshadowing of where it's all headed Um, as we get into uh, the chapters that focus on the consolation of the Lord for his people in chapters four and five in particular, on the results of that consolation being chapters six and seven. Um, You'll you'll recall as well in chapter one, er, in week one, uh, we talked through how uh, the the book of of Micah is structured around three cycles of three. Um, The first cycle ran all the way through chapters one and two, um, and it always begins with a word of warning, uh, moves towards a word of judgment. What, what, what will God do in light of the warning that he's given? Um, and then ends with a note of consolation. So in chapters one and two, we saw the first, uh, the first cycle come to completion as God condemned their sin, uh, promised the coming of judgment, and then culminated at the end of chapter two with the promise, really the hint of a promise that we're gonna see um, play out in chapters four and five of one who would come and be the wall breacher. Uh, who would break them out of their slavery and their exile and free them. You'll also remember that Micah, in these three cycles of three, is talking to two tribes, uh, sorry, talking to two kingdoms, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and all the northern tribes that went to the north. Um, in the north, you'll remember that their predominant problem was just rampant paganism. They had, for the most part, completely abandoned the worship of Yahweh um, and had practi- uh, were, were worshiping the Baals and had taken on the gods of the other nations. The problem with Judah was they had maintained the worship of Yahweh in the temple, and yet surrounded that with uh, kind of this integration of um, biblical religion, of what God had actually called them to in their worship of God. Um, They'd begun to mix that with the worship of the Baals, the pagan gods. And so you had in the north um, just complete rampant paganism, and you had in the south um, a kind of attempt to blend together two things that God says should never go together. And I think because of that, Micah speaks to us in a particular way, in a particular moment right now. I think one of the things that is rampant among American Christians in particular um, is we, we, we see around us a kind of secular paganism um, that is rampant. And rather than um, denouncing that, rather than standing against that, We've, we've allowed those things in our doors, the doors of our churches, into our pulpits, where we're trying to, attempting to blend together the kind of secular paganism um, that is shaping the world around us um, and to blend that together with uh, some form of a biblical religion. But in the face of that, Micah stands and condemns all of it. What's fascinating about Micah and his prophecy is he doesn't make a distinction between a Christianized paganism and paganism. It is all unfaithfulness 
to the Lord. It is all an attempt to appease the gods of the other nations. It's all an attempt to feed our own lusts. It's all an attempt um, to feed our own desires for wealth and money. It's all wickedness. So now as we turn to chapter 3, we start a new cycle. Um, And we're going to make it all the way through uh, the, the first two steps of that cycle here in this single chapter before we turn to the explicit consolation that will come, I promise, uh, next week on Christmas Eve. You don't have to come on Christmas Eve and hear a dark word of judgment. You can come on Christmas Eve and hear a wonderful word of consolation. It's just like letting you know. Um, and, uh, and so as he turns, he addresses uh, first, um, he addresses kind of three different uh, groups here. First, he, he addresses the rulers of Jacob, um, the rulers of Israel, the rulers of Judah, um, and then he turns and addresses the prophets um, of Judah, and then last, he speaks of his own calling um, in the middle of all of that. Um, it's important as we turn uh, in chapter 3, he begins to address the rulers, um, that there's a logical sequence that moves from chapter 2 to chapter 3. In chapter 2, um, you'll remember he condemns those who lie in bed at night, dreaming up evil, and then they wake up the next morning and there's nothing to stop them from doing it. They just do whatever it is they want to do. They, they feed their own lusts. They take whatever they want. In chapter 3, the logical sequence then is he then moves to say, who's the ones who allow these wicked, these wicked people in chapter 2 to be unhindered in their pursuit of evil? What happens when those who've been charged with justice, those who've been charged with upholding good and punishing evil, watch this happen in the society around them. And so he begins in chapter 3, verse 1, with this question. Is it not for you to know justice? This evil is spreading rampantly throughout the kingdom. And there are those, those who are the magistrates, those who've been given political power, political authority within that nation, that their job is to know justice, to know it and to enforce it, to bring it to bear. What, what should have been happening in Israel and in Judah is that the king would wake up, the governors would wake up, they'd wake up in the morning and they'd see these people who were dreaming of doing evil and they would go out and they would stop it. That's justice. There's much confusion over that word in our day. Um, people have taken justice and turned it upside down. I'm very much in line with this particular prophecy. They're to see the, the injustice. They're to see the evil. They're to see the, the, uh, the stealing. They're to see the lust. They're to see everything going nuts around them. And they're to put a stop to it. Their job, the reason why they're given authority... God tells us is to bear the sword and to bear the sword against those who do evil. But their problem is, in verse 2, you who hate the good and love the evil. As evil runs rampant around them, their response is not to hate the evil and put a stop to it. Um, hate and love, biblically speaking, are not primarily sentiments. Their actions. So to hate a thing is not that you just feel really angry about it. It's that you oppose it. You actively work to stop it. You put an end to it. 
And these magistrates, these rulers, they see the evil and they don't hate it. Um, They don't even just passively sit by and watch it happen. They celebrate it. They declare national holidays in honor of it. They host entire months celebrating the wickedness that runs rampant around them. And so evil does not stop. And then Micah uses a very, very disturbing image for, to, to, to draw a, an analogy for us of what these rulers are like, what they're actually then doing. These rulers eat the flesh of my people. They flay their skin from off them. They break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. These rulers look at this evil happening all around them. They celebrate it. They rejoice in it. They say, this is great. Look at all of this justice being done. Look at all of these wonderful things happening. Look at this free speech. Look at this, um, uh, look at what a great society it is where we um, can see people just live out their dreams and do whatever it is they want to do. And in so doing, they are consuming, they are destroying the people. But it's important to note that it sounds nice. It sounds caring. It sounds like they're putting a high value on freedom and freedom of expression. They're dignifying diversity. But what God says they're doing is that they are consuming and destroying the people. When you celebrate evil, you are destroying those you claim to love. Parents, when you tolerate sin, rebellion, a bad attitude, but when you greet it with smiles, when you greet it with tolerance, it feels loving, but you are devouring your children. But when those you work with express their sexual proclivities proudly, and you smile, and you greet it with welcome, it, it may feel loving. It might feel tolerant, open-minded, winsome even, but you are devouring your neighbor. There is rampant confusion in our day about the nature of love and the nature of hate. Love has been reduced to a kind of generic sweetness, a kind of tolerance, even celebrating what ought not to be celebrated. It's precisely what Micah is indicting in this text. Government figures, those who run Hollywood, those who run American corporations, celebrating what they ought to oppose and hating what they should love. So they will face the judgments promised to them in chapters 1 and 2. And when they do, unrepentantly, 
they will then cry out to the Lord for help. And not help for their sin, but help for the troubles that come upon them. And here is a bone-chilling promise from God to them. He will not answer them. He will hide his face from them because they have made their deeds evil. It is not kindness that tolerates sin. It is hatred. It is not mercy that winks the eye and smiles at immorality. It is hatred. It is devouring people, flaying their skin, breaking their bones in pieces, and chopping them up like meat in a pot. It is preparing those you claim to love into a stew. I don't like stews. Vegetables get squishy. And that, in our day, is what we call love. It is not love to cover the White House with a rainbow flag. It's hatred. It is a devouring of the people. Don't devour your children. And we should shudder when we see a government that loves and endorses the practice of evil. And we should see it for what it is. Next, he turns in verse 5 to address the prophets. And here we're going to see that the problem, the problem of the magistrate and the powers that be, those with authority and influence, um, they've come to to love what is evil and to hate what is good. And now you're going to see that problem compounded because the very people that God has appointed to point this out, to name it, they too have grown corrupt. Listen to Micah. It says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace, when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Here are prophets who've been appointed by God to declare the word of the Lord, um, to to, to give people vision, um, vision that they might see and discern what's actually happening around them. That in the face of evil, in the face of wickedness, in the face of um, the kind of avarice that's described in chapter 2, this sort of greed and thieving, the prophets are appointed by God to, to be a stopgap. That they're meant to be the ones who stand up and declare, this is the word of the Lord. This is wickedness. To name what is evil and call it evil, and to name what is good and call it good. I'm looking at the very end of the chapter. <clears throat> Uh, He says in, maybe it's not the end of the chapter. Oh, verse eight. Um, But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Their job is to say this is wickedness. This is evil. This is devouring the people. But instead, it says here they cry peace based on what they're given. And so for the sake of payment, for the sake of prestige, for the sake of avoiding what befell many of the Old Testament prophets, being tossed out, having ill reputation, being looked down upon, 
They preach, as he said in chapter two, wine and beer, peace. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. And because of this, the word of the Lord will be silent. Again, a bone-chilling warning. It's one thing to be lost in the dark, and to hear in the mercy of God a call to repentance and a call to return to the light. And it's entirely a different thing to be lost in the dark and to think you know the way, and there God remains silent. This is the judgment of God. It says, therefore, in verse 6, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. So we have wicked men doing wicked things. We have those in power celebrating that wickedness, endorsing that wickedness, loving that wickedness, and hating what is good. And then alongside them, we have prophets, we have preachers, we have pastors, we have seminary presidents, we have teachers, we have vast quasi-reformed evangelical organizations saying everything's fine. It's not that bad. Peace. Peace. Enjoy the blessings of liberty. And so God says, I will shut up my word. There are preachers in the midst of this kind of evil. Write think pieces about all we can learn from pagan practices. The glories of living in a society where statues of Satan can be placed in state houses. Where we can learn about the the glories of Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. And we can argue that the most important thing is that we all come off, us Christians come off as nice and encouraging, winsome and loving folks who proclaim peace where there is no peace, who say that everything is fine when everything is demonstrably not fine, who proclaim beer and wine as babies are torn apart in the womb, as families are torn apart, as sexual immorality is celebrated in the streets, as people are robbed and in that robbing are are flayed and cut up for stew. And they do so because they want to retain their position their income, their wealth, their pride of place with the evil powers that be. They want to maintain their respectability. These prophets will no longer be given the word of God. They will grow blind, unable to see God's word and unable to understand and discern God's vision of what's actually happening around us. They'll have nice intellectual conversations about what God condemns in the severest language imaginable. And they'll say the most important thing is to be sweet. The most important thing in the face of rape and murder and destruction 
is be nice. It's been fascinating in the providence of God to watch what's unfolded online in the last few weeks. As the self-appointed prophets of American evangelicalism have pointed out and condemned anyone who names the evil around us for what it actually is. Ironically, pointing to that unwinsomeness as sinful and just shrugging their shoulders and saying it's unfortunate that we live in a society that does these kinds of things. Last week in the Iowa State House, they put up a statue that Satanists got together, applied for a permit. I'm not sure what you put on a permit for this. Put up an altar and a statue of Satan in the middle of the State House. In the middle of it, a failed state senator and a Christian came in and beheaded the Satan statue. Wish I could have seen that. What was actually interesting, though, is what arose in the days after. Think pieces written by evangelical Christians on how unwinsome and unkind it was for that Christian to do so. We live in a free society, it said. The blessings of liberty include the ability of Satanists to honor Satan in the highest places of government. They proclaim peace when there is no peace. They proclaim beer and wine. And the reason they do so, according to God, is to keep money flowing. The reason they do so, according to Micah 3, is to keep the pride of position and place. The reason they nuance so much is to keep the respect of the people. And so the promise of God is that they will enter a night where they cannot see. The word of the Lord will be silenced among them. And they will not have any direction to give. And so God has addressed the rulers. He's addressed the prophets. And then in verse 8, Micah sets out a contrast. And he says this, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. In contrast to these compromising prophets, um, to these um, self-serving prophets, uh, Micah stands in the midst of them and says, but me, I am filled with the power of God. Um, I'm filled with the spirit of the Lord. What does that look like? And then what does it do? First, it looks like justice and might. Justice has been defined for us in verse 2 um, as hating the good and, <clears throat> sorry, loving the good and hating the evil. Injustice is hating the good and loving the evil. And so Micah says one sure sign that the power of God rests on him, that the Spirit of God has filled him to speak what is true, is that he sees the world as it is. He could point at evil and say that is evil and he could point at good and say it is good. 
The Spirit of the Lord in this verse, the Spirit of the Lord, actually as you see it defined, what happens when the Spirit of the Lord comes? Think back to 1 Samuel. When the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul, what does he do? He opposes evil. When the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David, what does he do? He grabs three stones and he kills a giant and cuts off his head. The Spirit of the Lord is not peace, peace. The Spirit of the Lord does not bring a kind of gentle, um, uh, uh, kind of introspective sort of balance to how you view the world. It brings clarity. This is evil and this is good. Two, he uses the word um, that the Spirit of the Lord brings upon him justice, and second, the second word is might. Um, uh, you could translate that as well in the Hebrew as courage. So here's not just kind of your keyboard warrior sitting back in a room thinking clear thoughts about good and evil. Here is a man filled with the spirit of God, filled with a kind of clarity about the nature of justice, about the nature of the world, about the nature of what people are doing around them. And he is filled with courage to oppose it. He does something even at cost to himself. What would it be like to be Micah? To stand in a society in the face of a government that would pays people off to say the right thing, who rewards them for their balance and their winsomeness and their niceness, to then in the face of that, condemn all of it in the strongest possible language. It takes courage. It takes Courage with neighbors, with coworkers, in political conversations, in religious conversations. It takes courage, sometimes in much smaller ways, but maybe even more courage in marriages and with children. To be filled with the Spirit of the Lord, to know and see, aligned with the Word of God, what is good, and to love what is good, and to encourage what is good, and to call for what is good, and to see, aligned with the Word of God, what is evil, and to hate what is evil, and to, and to condemn what is evil, and to discourage and oppose all that is evil. So the Spirit brings clarity about the nature of good and evil. The Spirit also brings courage. And the result for Micah is he declares the transgressions of Jacob and the, the sin of Israel. It's been fascinating to me. I have a number of charismatic friends. And they have uh, prophetic words. Those prophetic words are always really sweet. I leave encouraged when I hear them. But isn't it weird? Because <laughs> when you go to the scriptures, and the spirit of the Lord comes upon a prophet and he speaks, always it's not a word you want to hear. Like if you're attuned to the rhythms of scripture and the language of scripture, like if you're ever in one of those rooms, and somebody says, I have a prophetic word. There's a number of reasons why you should leave, but one of them is, if it's from the Lord, it's a terrifying word. It's a word that requires courage. It's a word that requires clarity around justice and good and evil. It's a hard word that points to consolation, which is where I want us to end. Um, looking at verse 9, he returns then 
to his condemnation of the prophets and the priests, the preachers of the day, and to the kings there in verses 9 and 10 and 11. And then he begins to tip his hat a bit. But let's let it make it worse before we see the good buried in it. Verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It's important to remember here, Zion and Jerusalem are in the south. So here's this severe word of judgment and it's not being primarily aimed at the, the, um, the pagans up, the, the pure pagans up north. It's being uh, most directed at those who possess the house of the Lord. Um, most directed at those who um, at least going on as some sort of, uh, some version of Christianity, some version of worshiping God. Um, and this hard word comes to them. And the word that comes to them is, What you see here, this thing that you say, no disaster shall befall us in verse 11. The Lord is here in our midst. We have church. We read our Bibles. Disaster won't come. Judgment won't come. Look at these pretty buildings. Look at our nice worship service. Look at our thoughtful reflection on the Bible. And Micah says, the Lord says, I will plow all of it. I like that word plow. Because like in football, it works in any sport. I'm going to plow you over. Not exactly sure what that means. How do you plow a defensive lineman? But I can guarantee you it hurt. God says, I will destroy you. These buildings, these things that you point to, I'm going to level them. Brings us back to the imagery in chapter one that, that God will bring the, take the high places, the places where um, men are presuming to, to ascend to God and to worship God and to kind of find their identity in God um, while they live however they want everywhere else. Their, their religious presumptuousness. He says, I'm gonna take the high places. I'm going to tear them down to the ground. And he says here, your temple, your city, I'm going to plow it over and it's going to be a heap of ruins. I'm going to destroy it all. And as it's falling, you'll cry out for help and I will not answer you. Is there anything more terrifying in the scriptures than the silence of God? And do not distance yourself or or our time from this time. Our wickedness is easily just as rampant, just as widespread, just as corrupt, if not far more so than the corruption of these men in chapter two and three. The falseness of our preachers, our prophets, our churches is just as wicked, if not far more so than the preachers who proclaim peace when there is none. You tell us that everything's essentially fine. And God says, I will plow it. Not one stone will be left on top of another. This, by the way, is a pattern for God. (laughs) Happens 
with regards to Babylon. It happens with regards to the Assyrians. It happens again after Jesus comes and he promises that it's going to happen and it happens again in 70 AD. God seems to find delight in plowing all of our high places. In laying waste to every presumption that ignores his law and proclaims peace when there is not peace. So, Merry Christmas. Where's this good news, Mr. Brown? The language used in verse 12 to describe the result of the judgment of God also contains imagery of the garden of God. And this is the marvel of God's judgment. Oh, he destroys, but he destroys in order to plant new gardens. Um, look at verse, the end of verse 12. It says, the mountain of the house, it's referring, to, referring specifically to the temple, will become a wooded height. The, wood, the, the language there for wooded heights, the same language for a vineyard. Oh, God will lay waste to our sin. God will lay absolute waste to a society that celebrates sin, that celebrates injustice, that loves what is evil. And right in the middle of it, he plants a new garden. In, in fact, if he didn't destroy it, we wouldn't have the chance to have a garden. And so God comes and he wipes out all of our religious presumption. He wipes out all of our blindness. He, he wipes out all of our love, for what, is, um, ha- love what is, for what is evil and hatred for what is good. And right in the middle of it, he begins to rebuild. He begins to restore. He begins to rescue. And here he begins to establish a righteousness that will flood the nations of the earth and fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Oh, Zion will be plowed, but plowed as a field. A field that will actually bear fruit. Oh, the temple will be cast down, but cast down that a vineyard might grow a vineyard from which the nations will drink the wine of the new covenant, the covenant made in the blood of Christ, the blood that cleanses us of our sin, that restores us to God and implants in us a love for what is good and a hatred for what is evil. So be filled with the spirit, be filled with good courage, knowing good from evil and cling to what is good hate what is evil and find hope in the great plowing work of Jesus. Let's pray and prepare for communion.